0: Now, uh, that being said, would you stand with me? Um, And we're going to begin today with the reading of God's word, starting Colossians chapter three, verses one through 17. A little bit of a long passage, but it's a good one. Paul writes this, he says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater. Worshipping the things of this world. Because of these sins, The anger of God's coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other for you have stripped off your old sinful self and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature. Be renewed as you learn to know your creator and come like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. Always be thankful. Let the message about Christ and all its richness uh, richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. Word of the Lord, you can be seated. Amen. Thanks be to God uh, for all of his word. All right, so it's time to talk about mental health. Again. uh, I tell you what, I do not know how many times we have talked about this over the last several years. It's been a lot. And, And I don't think it's been enough. I'm not sure if you can talk about this enough right now. It's a pressing issue that's impacting our community and our nation in significant ways. Uh, Some statistics that you may have heard me kind of list off before first. Did you know, and this is the low number that I found, but did you know that at least 20% of adults struggle with mental health in a given year? The percentage pretty much always trends higher among teenagers, And did you know last year in the summer, June 2020, the CDC reported that in the middle of COVID, the percentage doubled. 40% of Americans reported struggling with mental health or substance abuse. Which means, and this is kind of an undocumented statistic, but I think it's gotta be there. Uh, That means 100% of the people in this room right now know someone or love someone dearly who is struggling significantly with mental health. This is in your home. This is in your workplace, this is in your city, this is in this room right now. And it needs to be addressed. Now, before we get into the, the nature of this series today, because it's gonna be a little bit of a different series, I feel like we gotta do this at the beginning of every series on mental health. I need to lay sort of the groundwork or the framework for which our church thinks about spirituality, faith, and and mental health. This is one of the most popular questions that we get about mental health. Um, And uh, thanks to our youths and many of the questions that they sent in, it just proves how popular it is. You guys know we've been doing a segment in each sermon called Questions from the Youths where I've picked out some questions that they've asked that's relevant to the topic at hand and so... I'm like, this is the most popular question I got from y'all. All all right, I got got it about five different ways. So here's kind of what it sounds like. Um, Question, this is the 11th one we've we've answered, I think now in a couple months. Uh, First, does the church help improve someone's mental health? Or how can I use the church as support when I'm struggling? Does my faith, and this is at the heart of it, does my faith have anything to do with my mental health? Great questions. And again, those questions help us kind of set up a framework for how we approach it and talk about it at Northeast. Five things I would say to that. First, I want you to know that at Northeast, we advocate what I would call a, a holistic approach to mental health. A holistic approach to mental health. So, by that I mean, yes, absolutely, positively, 100%, we believe that the church, and faith and spirituality and spiritual rhythms and disciplines impact your mental health in a positive way. You should do that. We believe that faith impacts mental health. We also believe in medication. We also believe in counseling and the power of that. We also believe that uh, fitness and nutrition can play a critical role. We, we believe that significant relationships in your lives where you can share and love one another play a critical role. We take a holistic approach. And really there's no silver bullet for any one person. It seems like every individual has a little bit of a different path to move towards mental health. Now that brings me to the second and third. We believe, second, mental health problems are actually rarely faith problems, but they almost always have faith solutions. Now We are not the kind of church that's gonna look at somebody and say, well, the reason why you're so sad and depressed is because you're just not finding your joy in the Lord. The reason why you're so anxious is, is because you just don't trust in God enough. So will you just pray more, read your Bible more, have better faith, and that'll fix it. That'll fix it. That's, again, we don't come from that perspective. In, in fact, in my opinion, you know what I've seen? I've seen some of the most faithful people in this church can be the ones that struggle with chronic, uh, chronic mental illness. And it's not because they don't read their Bible enough. It's not a sin to struggle But when you are struggling, if you engage in some of these practical spiritual solutions, it can help. I've seen it help. The power of the Holy Spirit can help. That leads us to fourth. We believe talking about our mental health problems with one another is vital. It's so vital. I found this in my research as a point of consensus from medical doctors to counselors and psychologists to pastors who are trying to deal with this head on. We have to talk about it. When we talk about it, it destigmatizes it. When we talk about it, it raises awareness. And when you have loved ones that you can share personally and vulnerably with, it actually has a healing quality to it. There's a spiritual principle underneath that. When we bring that which is in darkness out into the light, it tends to lose some of its power. So that's why we talk about mental health here a lot. We think we can steal some of the power to do harm from it. That leads last, number five, to this, and you need to know this. Throughout this series, anytime, our pastors are here for you. We are here to help you. We want to help you. But we stay in our lane. Okay? So don't ask me about your prescription. i don't answer that. Don't count on Melinda to diagnose you. She's not going to do that. Right? We're not, we're, that's not what we're trained to do. We're trained to offer spiritual guidance, shepherding, and pastoral care. And we want to do that. And we also have a a list of professionals who can help you in ways that we can't. So a big important slide right here. I want you to write this phone number down um, because if any point in time you're struggling with mental health, you want to talk to a pastor at our church, you can text us. Text us at 502-717-1783. And uh, if you text a keyword, that'll help us. But if your your issue didn't really fall on a keyword, that's fine, just text us. And there'll be a pastor on the other end uh, waiting to help you. Leave that up for a second, so if anybody wants to grab it, you can grab it. Good? All right. Now, to the series today. We have done three focused series now in the last three years. This would be the third one, uh, addressing mental health. And this series is going to be totally different than the other two. So if y'all remember, in the first series, uh, we spoke directly to people who are struggling with mental health problems. In the second series, we spoke directly to people who are the caregivers, um, the loved ones of those struggling with mental health problems. Really practical stuff to be found there. I would encourage you to go online, find those series if that sounds at all interesting to you. Today's series is going to be different because today's series, next five weeks, is going to be for everyone, everyone in here. No matter where you might place yourself on the spectrum of mental health or unhealth, this series is for you, um, we could call it, if we wanted to, emotionally healthy spirituality. Let me say that again emotionally healthy spirituality, because that's what we're after in this series. This is going to be a proactive discipleship series in which we're encouraging the people in our church to pursue Christian maturity through emotional health. I want to challenge everybody in this church to let Jesus into a place that most of us haven't, and that's our emotions. Okay, so a good point of comparison is our physical health. Most of us know that if we create habits and rhythms of physical health in our life, like uh, you know, if you're exercising and eating nutritiously, regularly, that actually decreases the likelihood of disease over time. It can bolster your immune system and uh, decrease the power and potency of virus when you get it, like COVID-19 is a perfect example of this. One of the best ways to make sure that it doesn't have fatal impact on your life is to be healthy when you get it, right? The same is true when it comes to emotional health. We believe that if you create some spiritual rhythms, if you begin to practice contemplative spiritual spiritual practices and you're connecting with God, allowing the Holy Spirit into your emotional life, that can actually help prevent long-term problems down the road. Or when things like grief, depression, and anxiety hit, you're better equipped to walk through it with Jesus. This is what we want. This is what we're after. And most of us have never thought about our spirituality on an emotional level. Now, uh, just to be totally transparent, we're going to be walking through, like most of the sermons are going to be drawing content straight out of this book right here. Pete Scazzaro's book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Encourage everybody in the church to buy it, to read it. It's worth it. Uh, it's, it's been so impactful on many Christians and churches that uh, Scazzaro and his team came out with a, a devotional guide day by day that asks some really good probing questions and offers scriptural insight and devotion and also a workbook for groups to go through. So if you've got a Bible study or a small group, we want you to go through this. If you want to get in a small group that goes through all of this, we're going to be uh, launching those at the beginning of the new year, so keep your ears open for that. But the material's that valuable. It's so valuable that we've taken our whole staff through it. If that tells you anything. We've got one staff group left going through it right now. They have two more weeks left in the eight-week process. I'm in that last group. We're finishing up right now. And I'll go ahead and tell you, it has made me look into myself and ask questions of myself and pursue a level of emotional health that I never would have otherwise. I'm a man. <laughs> Raised in the South. A jock. Place I, my, I was told that my my feelings are supposed to be suppressed. Don't be weak, man. Shake it off, rub some dirt on it. Right. I'm gonna tell you what, when it comes to your emotions, it's not, it's not a wise thing to do. All right, now, what is emotionally healthy spirituality? Let's get down to it. It's kind of like a fluffy, fuzzy term type. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, I think the best way to describe what I mean by that is to, is to articulate what emotionally healthy spirituality isn't. Okay? In the first chapter of Scazzaro's book, he actually lays out uh, 10 symptoms of unhealthy emotional spirituality. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you the, t- the symptoms straight out of the book. And, uh, and then I'm going to give a brief descriptor for each of them. <clears throat> and this is what I want to ask you to do. Okay, I want to ask you to kind of self-diagnose. Okay, In fact, I, wanna, I want you to keep score. There's 10 of them. And I want you to do it publicly. Put both hands up. We're about to break the stigma. Today, all right, I want, you to put, I want you to put both hands up. And when you, when you hear one that may remotely remind you of yourself, I want you to give yourself a point, okay? If you're here today with your spouse and you hear one that reminds you of them, you're allowed to give them a point. <laughs> if you're here with your kids or your parents, be careful, okay? But, <laughs> but go for it, I don't know, what the heck. Okay, so here they are. Let's start, start from the beginning here, all right? Uh, First, first symptom of emotionally unhealthy spirituality is, uh, is this. Using God to run from God. Using God to run from God. Do you create a lot of God activity on the outside, but rarely examine yourself on the inside? Are there sins or addictions or habits you're ignoring or justifying by just doing a lot of other God stuff? Is there an area of your life you're hiding from God? Do you ever self-examine the internal messages you believe about yourself? And if that sentence right there is like, what do you, what do you, that mean, give yourself a point, okay? <laughs> if any of that's true, give yourself a point. Second, um, ignoring anger, sadness, and fear. Ignoring anger, sadness, and fear. Uh, do you have a hard time, again, men who grew up in the South and play sports, do you have a hard time admitting or expressing your feelings? especially ones like fear, sadness, shame, anger, or hurt? Do you think that makes you weak? Have you been taught that that's bad? Those are bad emotions for a Christian? Or were you modeled by your parents that suppressing these feelings is the right thing to do? That's you, give yourself a point. Third, dying to the wrong things. Do you feel guilty for enjoying the good things of life? Do you feel guilty for watching like four hours of Netflix but you can't even like pray for five minutes? you should um no do do you do you constantly wonder if you give enough or do enough for god do you feel like you should always be busy working achieving growing and you can't really enjoy the good things in life like relationships art nature recreation or rest if that's you give yourself a point fourth uh denying the impact of my past on my present this is a big one do you ignore the past like it's just going to go away Do you think your past won't impact others in your life that you love? Have you just never really thought about your upbringing or maybe the father or mother wounds that you have on your life? That's you, give yourself a point. Uh, Fifth, dividing life into secular and sacred compartments. Do you compartmentalize Jesus to Sundays, studies, and small groups and then are totally different person at work or at home? If that's your spouse, give them a point. (laughs) Sixth, uh, doing for, this is a big one for me. Doing for God instead of being with God. Is most of your spiritual activity work for God? Generosity, service, like attendance. And almost none of it, time with God. Prayer, contemplation, self-examination, silence, solitude, rest. Do you take a Sabbath every week? Are you any good at all at prayer? If I were to ask you to sit still for 30 minutes and be with God, would you know what to do or would you just be kind of freaked out about that? That's you give yourself a point. Seventh, spiritualizing away conflict. Do you leave conflict unaddressed or unresolved? Are you averse to it? Do you avoid it by baptizing it with spiritual language? I'm supposed to forgive. We have to maintain unity. I'm not called to judge. Are you a people pleaser? Would you rather keep the peace in a relationship than address the truth? That's you, give yourself a point. Eighth, covering over brokenness, weakness, and failure. This is another big one that I see, especially in the church. Do you feel the need to constantly present yourself as spiritually strong or holy? Even when you're feeling broken or weak, do you put this sort of spiritual veneer on? I'm doing okay. Even at church, especially at church. Are you that way with your pastor, with your spouse, or with your loved ones who you're supposed to be able to be vulnerable with? If that's you, give yourself a point. Ninth, living without limits. This one's pretty simple. Are you too busy? And I know our church, so nine out of 10 people just go ahead and go give yourself a point, okay? Give yourself a point. And 10th. Are you somebody who has a problem with judging other people's spiritual journey? Do you feel uncomfortable being around people who believe different or sin different than you? Do you get impatient when people don't change as fast as you think they should? Do you feel a tremendous burden to convince or change people who may disagree with you? If that's you, give yourself a point. All right, tally them up. And do we have any tens in the room who we need to intercede for right now? If I'm being honest with you, like COVID, Tyler, is, it's probably like an 8.5. Because, I mean, who is at their emotional best right now? <laughs> now look, underneath all these, and I hope you took them seriously. I hope this just wasn't one of those quizzes that you kind of do on Facebook because you're really into yourself. No, I hope you took it Seriously. Because underneath this could be some real spiritual unhealth. And this is what I believe, big point here. Until we address our emotional health, until we address those things, you're gonna have a spiritual lid on your life. You have a spiritual lid on this church. You're gonna have a spiritual lid on your marriage, on your relationships. You have a spiritual lid on your connection with God. Oh, and here's the big problem. Few of us have ever intentionally addressed our emotional health at a spiritual level. And part of that's on the church because few churches have any sort of discipleship intention when it comes to this. Our church has not been great at it in the past. So I'll show you a diagram real quick. Um, This diagram uh, explains what I would call the five big parts of who we are as human beings. The intellectual, the relational, the social, the physical, and the emotional. Now, I think most churches are pretty good and intentional about driving spiritual formation when it comes to the intellectual and the relational. You know, you got your Bible studies, you got your curriculums, men's ministry, women's ministry, small groups, marriage ministry, parenting, like all the things. Lots of churches are good at that and praise God for it. Far, far, far fewer churches do anything with the social. By social, I mean like social justice, common good, neighbor love, getting out there and unleashing Jesus' love in the city. For what it's worth, it's a strength of our church. I believe that. But a few churches really pay much attention to that. Then far, 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 far fewer churches ever pay any attention at all to those bottom two, the physical and the emotional health of their people. Well, oh, the reason why is obvious. I don't want to touch that. Like when it comes to physical health, first off, I'm not a doctor and everybody has, you know, different aspects to their own physical situation, but there is just so much shame and like judgment and insecurity around people's bodies that it's, it's just hard to go there without people getting hurt. That doesn't change the fact that Jesus says our bodies are the temple of the Lord. Doesn't change the fact that Scripture is, is clear that. This is a gift. The body we've been given is a gift from God that we're called to steward. And if we steward it well, not only can we elongate our life, but we can maximize our ministry capacity in this life. So it's an important thing. But I won't touch that. And it's the same thing with our emotional health. There's lots of shame and stigma around it, so we just don't go there. I believe we got to go there. For the record, this is why... Um, You can meet someone who's like an intellectual beast when it comes to knowing theology or knowing scripture. They're like teaching the Bible studies at your church, but they're totally a spiritual infant because they're very formed in one aspect of who they are, but they've never even thought about the other four. I believe there are people, I know people, Okay, well, you want me to call out names? I'll point you. Now, there are people who who have read scripture every single day for like 10, 20 decades now, but are also incredibly insecure and judgmental. It's an emotional health problem. I believe that there are people who are passionate about sharing the gospel. But they're also obnoxious and really pretty unpleasant to be around. I believe there are people who invest hours every week in serving the poor. But they have a father wound they've never dealt with that's leaking on others. Or they're totally incapable of intimacy with God, much less other people, because of their emotional unhealth. So we've got to get serious about that. Look, the last two years, <laughs> the last two years have been traumatic for most of us. In fact, I would go as far to say that if you've lived in this country for the last two years, then there has to be some emotional unhealth in your life right now. It's been a tough couple years. I had a counselor friend come on one of our staff calls about a year ago. And I asked him to to literally train our staff in how to pastor people through post-traumatic stress. We did it again this year because it's so good. Because that's just where our people are at, right? And it was interesting. As he was going through it, he was doing like the symptoms and talking about how to identify it, like just some effective ways that we can pastor people. At the end of it, I was like, man, Brian, that was really great. Thanks, buddy. Real quick, just show of hands from the staff, who self-diagnosed? And like every hand on the call went up. So we're like, oh, no, our people are really screwed up, and so are we. <laughs> Lord, help us all. Now <laughs> I believe there are four specific points of trauma that we've gone through over the last year. And I just want to name them here. Okay, we've got to bring that which is in darkness out into the light. First is loss. 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 We've all lost things over the last couple years of great significance. Loss of relationships, loss of a marriage, loss of a job, loss of financial stability, loss of a cherished dream or way of life, loss of a sense of safety and control, loss of your physical health, maybe even the loss of a loved one. Now, here's the thing about loss. It always results in grief. And grief is traumatic. I don't know if you've ever heard of the five stages of grieving, but maybe you're in that cycle right now. Stage one's denial, stage two's anger, stage three is bargaining, stage four is depression, stage five is acceptance, and we all hope we get to acceptance at some point, but it's a tough process to go through. Second point of trauma is what I would call extended ambiguity and uncertainty. Extended ambiguity and uncertainty. There has been nothing that's certain over the last two years, has there? Nothing that's predictable. Mandates shifting, lockdowns, job furloughs, churches closed, vaccines, conspiracies. Like There was an attack on our capital in the middle of it. There were weeks of grief and protest in our city. We didn't know if the food supply chains were gonna make it, if our kids were gonna go to school, if our government was gonna survive, if our businesses were gonna close, or if someone that we love was gonna die. It's total disorientation. All of our rhythms, all of our routines were just sort of thrown up in the air and some of them never came back to the ground. Now, living in that sort of disorienting reality Has caused anxiety, crippling anxiety in, in many of our lives. Anxiety comes from when you feel unsafe, when you feel like there's a loss of control. So we just start to worry all the time. Your mind goes to worst case scenarios. You're like quadruple masking and 15 feet social distancing, even outdoors, just to be safe. You can't sleep even though you're tired. This is by the way, where I think conspiracies get traction from. Even if conspiracies are outrageous, they give you a sense of like intellectual certainty and control in a time where nothing seems all that certain. And so people believe them. It all comes from a source of trauma. Extended ambiguity and uncertainty. Third point of trauma is this, extended isolation. Extended isolation. I'm not not gonna lie, okay? Um, At the beginning of all the lockdowns, the introverts, we liked it. I was okay with well, it. Like, but um, over time, it's traumatic. We were not made to do life alone. We just weren't. You begin to, to, to doubt your self-worth and, uh, and your purpose. You're cut off from honestly the only Real sense of joy that you had left to access. Your friends and your family. Like this is one of the greatest joys in life is these relationships. You can't connect with them. And so loneliness steps in and loneliness can be crippling. Fourth point of trauma. Betrayal and abandonment. Betrayal and abandonment. And maybe this is the question of COVID. This one. Who'd you lose? And not to COVID. But to the polarization, politicization, and seething rage out there. Who did you lose? Some of you can think of conversations right off the top of your head. Maybe it was a conversation on the family text thread or at a dinner table. Maybe it was a conversation that started somewhat civil in the comments section, and then when other people started getting into it, and before you know it, it's just out of hand. Like who, who did you lose? Maybe you don't even know who you lost or maybe they don't know they lost you because you saw them post something or like something on the internet and you were like, well, forget about that. And you unfollowed and have been ghosting them ever since. Who is it? Like, is it a coworker? Is it a friend? Is it a family member, a loved one, an adult child, a parent? Is it a pastor or a church? I wonder. Look, when lots of people abandon you or... When folks you deeply love leave, the trauma's deep there. You can start to grow in distrust of everyone. You start operating out of a place of suspicion. You begin to withdraw from new relationships, create distance in old relationships. No one can get close to you because you're relationally insecure, constantly wondering when the next person is going to leave you. You go through seasons of self-loathing or... Blame. You seethe in anger. You relive those conversations over and over. You feel disposable. And all of it just exacerbates the loneliness that's already there. You been there? It can be traumatic. And all four of those can create a tremendous amount of emotional unhealth inside of you if not dealt with well. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you guys now, all right? And I'm not asking for your pity right here. I just honestly want to destigmatize this. I wanna normalize this. So I'm gonna be honest with you. Um, this fourth one, betrayal and abandonment, has done a number on my own emotional health over the last two years. It has. And uh, the, the reason why is just when, when enough people betray or abandon, you start believing internal messages that just aren't healthy, aren't true. Here's a few of them that I've I've believed over the course of this last couple of years. Um, this, Northeast, is not really a family to us. We moved here from a city that we really loved, seven hours away from my family, under the guise that it would be a family to us, but it's not a family to us. Look at people leave. I am not unconditionally loved. I'm conditionally liked. They'll like you just as long as you don't say anything that upsets their political sensibilities. Their trust and admiration, Tyler, for you as a spiritual authority is conditional. There are certain idols you must not touch. People won't, they won't change their politics over their church, but they'll change their church over their politics. You believe it. When people leave, uh, it exposes my inadequacy as a preacher and a leader. The last 10 years of ministry were a failure in the lives of hundreds. I have a divisive personality for addressing uh, tough issues. I shouldn't get too close to anyone, they could be next. Maybe I'm the wrong leader for this moment. The staff is suffering because of my decisions. Maybe there's no hope in the local church. You know, I'd probably be a lot happier coaching baseball. Now y'all laugh, but what you don't know is that when I graduated college, I had two opportunities. One was a scholarship to go to seminary and get my MDiv and go into ministry, and the other was a collegiate baseball coaching position. And I thought hard through it, prayed through it. I, earlier this year, Lindsay and I uh, <laughs> were sitting on the couch one night. I was watching baseball, and I uh, saw the first base coach. He was like leaned over first base, whispering something in one of his players' ears. And I was like, oh, that looks like a nice life. I said, Lindsay, you see that first base coach right there? And she's like, yes, honey. You know, like, And I'm like, how many times do you think over the last week that guy right there had to, uh, had to give his stance or make decisions about, public health mandates, systemic racism, human sexuality, President Trump, sanctity of life, vaccinations, masks, CRT, abortion law in Texas, First Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, throw those in there. Got a couple of questions. Uh, Afghanistan, immigration and refugees, women's rights, Black Lives Matter, the Southern Baptist Convention, Mark Driscoll. The list goes on. She didn't answer. But I did, I was like... Probably none. And that sounds like a nice life right now. Now look, all of those internal messages are unhealthy. And they're not true. I mean, I look around this room, I see so many faces in here. And I know, this is my family, my spiritual family. Yeah, and and I'm your family. I, I look around this room, I see so many people that, have loved us so well, and, and we love you so deeply, but that's the sort of roller coaster you get on when you're living through trauma. Some of y'all are thinking, man, this kid is a mess. Well, maybe, maybe, but guess what? Here's what I know about you. I'm a pastor. I know people, okay? You're a mess too. You're just a different kind of mess, all right? And maybe your problem is that you haven't brought it under the light of Jesus. That's the point of this series. You need this series more than me. So I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Now, honestly, this is why I chose Colossians chapter three for our passage. Let me read the first four verses again. The apostle Paul says, "'Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, "'set your sights on the realities of heaven,' "'where Christ sits in the place of honor "'at God's right hand. "'Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. "'For you died to this life, "'and your real life is hidden with Christ, In God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Now, here's the deal. I believe that one of the big mistakes that we make as Christians or that we make as churches is that we believe that when we're made new in Jesus, because that's what it says, we've been raised to new life with Christ. When we're made new with Jesus, somehow, like, all of the the old us just magically disappears. Like the environmental nurture, the past trauma, the sin habits that we've built up over time, they're just gone. It's got like magic, Holy Spirit power, right? Certainly sometimes when you do come to Jesus, you do experience miraculous healing, but that's not the case most of the time. When you come to Christ, when you're made new, you receive a new status, you're justified, pronounced innocent long before the judgment day, but then that begins the process, what we call sanctification, where you put off the old self and you put on the new self. This is what Paul's getting at here in Colossians 3. In verse one, it's actually a conditional statement. It's an if then. He says, if you've been raised to life with Christ, then you need to what? Set your sights on the realities of heaven and think about the realities of heaven. Douglas Moo is a New Testament scholar, commentator on Colossians. He says, what Paul's getting at here is a total reorientation of your will. You awaken to this new heavenly reality where Christ is sitting on the throne of the universe and you awaken to this new identity that you have with Christ in God. And when you do, that changes things, but you have to awaken yourself to it. This is why Paul goes on in the passage here in verse five through 11 to tell us, put off the old self and then verse 12 through 17, put on the new self. Sounds like something we have to do, right? And Paul gets pretty passionate about it. Verse five, he says, put it to death. Put to death the earthly ways. Get rid of all the sinful ways. Like this is violent warfare language, y'all, but he's not calling us to wage war against flesh and blood. He's calling us to wage war on the old sinful habits that are there. Kill them, Paul says, kill them. Now look, how do we do this? How do we do this? He's clear. Set your sights on the realities of heaven. Think about these things. Awaken to the alternative reality of Christ on the throne and your new identity in Christ. I think it's important to call this out here. Okay, you need to know as Christians, that we believe in an alternative reality and a new identity, we do. We believe first in a hidden but tangible alternative heavenly reality that exists and is very real right now in this moment and it's all over this passage. And what would it mean for our lives if we actually lived every moment of it like that was true what if we lived a life that acknowledges that just out of our sight right now Jesus is on the throne of heaven and he's surrounded by thousands upon millions of angels who are singing holy 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 worthy is the lamb to receive all glory honor power and blessing what if we actually believe that he rules right now and he's bending the macro arc of human history towards justice redemption and love we can count on that and he can't be stopped What if we lived like that was the truest reality, that every place I stand, everywhere I go, that little two-by-two plot of soil that I'm standing on, that's kingdom soil. And on that soil, I bring with me the reign and the rule and the power and the authority of the king that I serve. I'm an ambassador of Jesus. And everywhere I go, I bring with me the values and the presence of the king. That means when somebody comes into my presence, there should be no doubt in their mind that I subscribe to a different sort of rule, not the identity politics or the cultural values or the moral imagination of my moment, but Jesus's. In this moment, what if I lived as if I actually did have power over sin? I could conquer any evil, shine light in any circumstance. like Remember, Jesus stood before Pilate bleeding and in cuffs. And you know what he said to him? He says, the only reason why you have any power over me, my friend, is because I gave it to you. What if we lived that way? What if we faced down every system and structure, every principle, power, and principality with that sort of heavenly confidence and authority? What if we lived as if death had been uh, defeated? Because it has. Like We had nothing to fear in this life. Because we don't. What if we lived with a sort of urgency, but also patience that one day Jesus is going to slash open the sky and this alternative reality we call heaven is going to come pouring in and it's going to be terrifying because in that moment, every knee will bow and tongue will confess, but it'll also be magnificent because in that moment, there will be no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain. It'll be satisfying because all the injustice that we've been waiting to be healed is gone, will be vindicated in the eyes of the world like every inch, ounce, and organism of evil will be chased out. No longer will our life with Christ be hidden. It'll be revealed to all. What if we lived into that? Because it's true. For the follower of Jesus, it's true. And look, that alternative reality is not the only gift that we have. We have a new identity as well. It's all over the Colossians passage. Go read it again for yourself. What if we lived with this sense of royalty, this sense of mission that we get from Christ. Like we're so good at spiritualizing this away. I'm a child of God, yes I am, right? We, we spiritualize it. But then we under-emphasize our identity with God and over-identify with all of our earthly allegiances and identities. Now, we over-identify with Kentucky basketball, cards football, like we go crazy at the games, right? But like, I can't, see that passion in here? So a lot of folks are like, I can't come back to church yet, but I saw you at the Cards game. <laughs> just saying, right? So we spiritualize the kingdom of God away and our identity as adopted children away, like a nice fairy tale. Look, we gotta start telling better stories. Because we have a great story. Amen. Hi, I'm Karis. I'm an Enneagram Nine. I do. I'm in healthcare. I love the cards. Mercy grad. Go Jaguars. It's fall, like orchards, apple crisp. Here's a picture of my fur baby, Lainey. Have you ever been to Nulu? Like these are the stories that we tell. This is who we think we are. It's bigger than that. It's so much better than that. We've got to start telling the better story. Hey, you wouldn't believe my story. I was once a rebel and an orphan, but I was adopted into the most powerful family in the universe. Our ancestors are from the Middle East, sounds a little bit weird, right? But it's a royal family and the royalty and religious hierarchy are linked together. So I'm a prince, I have the privileges, rights and privileges, uh, uh, privileges, rights and, uh, and riches that come with being a son. But I'm also an ambassador that gets an opportunity to shape the spiritual and social climate of the nation. We're currently establishing the utopian future that this world will end on right now and we have folks from the royal family planted in every nation you could imagine. That's a story. It's a heck of a story. Sounds intense, right? Bits bit supernatural. It's Halloween after all. But I'll tell you what, when when we recognize this, when we live into this, we can live with a sort of emotionally healthy spirituality Jesus did. You understand, he didn't get his identity, his his sense of like self-esteem from others. Jesus didn't. The Pharisees thought he was a drunk and a glutton. The crowds thought he was a messiah worth crucifying. The disciples thought he was weak. His family thought he was crazy. John the Baptist thought he was confusing. Pontius Pilate thought he was disposable. And yet Jesus never had any doubt that he was the only begotten of the son, full of grace and truth, that he was the compassionate savior, that he was the victor over death and that he was the anointed Messiah and king of the world. Get his self-esteem from others. And he didn't get his sense of mission from his circumstances either. He was born poor in a manger, raised under the guise of illegitimacy, rejected by his hometown, persecuted by many, doubted and abandoned by his disciples, betrayed by one of his closest friends, judged and rejected by his religious leaders, lynched to death unjustly by his government. Talk about trauma. Yet he found joy, peace, and purpose because he was fully awake to the alternative reality of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven he was awake to his identity he was awake to the alternative reality and as his followers if we go in his way so shall we be so one more time I'll read to you this passage I pray it's your verse this month partake of communion and remember him since you have been raised to new life with Christ Paul writes you have been raised to new life with Christ he writes set your sights on the realities of heaven Where Christ, your Resurrector, the victor over death, sits in the place of honor at God's right hand, even in this moment. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life. And your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, praise God, you will share.